9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and it is my pleasure to welcome to the show today from a much warmer place than where I am here up with snow up to some place you don't want to hear about um, uh, 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 in New York City. We have Corey Shockey in her dusty little cow town in California. Hi, Corey. <laughs> Hello, David. And in Chicago, which is, I guess, as snowy as, as this, but maybe a little bit colder, we have uh, the CEO of Chicago Council on Global Affairs, uh, uh, Ambassador Evo Dalder. How are you, Evo? I am great. Glad you're getting the blizzard we just had a couple of days ago. Yeah, that's we got our we got the these in this case very sloppy seconds from Chicago. It's a mess. Uh, and David Sanger, where are you, David Sanger of the New York Times? I am in Washington D.C., where a full two inches of snow fell, immediately requiring them to cancel all the schools and bring the federal government to a screeching halt if you could notice. Um, yeah, that's that's what I've heard. I've heard it's a complete disaster there um, <laughs> because of a snowflake. In, they and, banned all Zoom meetings during the snow. It's too risky. Yeah. <laughs> it's too dangerous. <laughs> too dangerous. Although I did see an amusing tweet from Joe Biden saying as he walked from the East Wing to the Oval Office that he was appreciating the shorter commute. Does that tell you something about how presidential tweets have changed? Yes. Well, oh, have, God, it's such a relief. You know, it really you know, it's funny. People sort of make jokes about that. It I, it really is a relief. Yeah. Not, not no, I actually with. the baseline anxiety level is so much lower because there's actual actually a process that produces government decisions, not just wild throw your hat in the air and fire it at nastiness, like during the Trump administration. Right. Twitter is getting pretty boring, right? I mean, (laughs) it's just now like information that's useful uh, that you normally in older times would have read in the newspaper and now you read it on Twitter, but it's, you don't really go back to your Twitter account to say, oh, what kind of nutcases are out there now? At least maybe the ones I'm following don't do that. Well, anymore. I think you should follow Marjorie Taylor Greene and Congresswoman Boebert and a few others. There's, there are plenty of ways to get a little more excitement into your Twitter diet if you want. Um, but, you know, we're going to set all those nuts aside for now. Um, because in, in the course of the past few days, something else has broken out in addition to civility, compassion, and competence in Washington, um, a little foreign policy has broken out. And here we are doing a podcast on national security and foreign policy issues, and there's actually some things to discuss. So I think we should start with plucking things from the headlines. Um, And um, let's, let's start with Russia, since there's two stories pertaining to Russia, as opposed to um, just one. We have uh, widespread ongoing demonstrations uh, uh, related to 
both Navalny and sort of protests against the government, which I think over the weekend, 5,000 people were arrested. Uh, somebody pointed out that one of the estimates of, you know, the, the government estimates was there were 300 protesters, but there were 5,000 arrests, which is very Russian. <laughs> um, and then at the same time, uh, uh, we, we actually had made progress with Russia on, uh, on, on the new START treaty. Just go around to each of you, starting with you, Corey. What's your take on these recent developments uh, in Russia and, and with regard to U.S.-Russia relationship? Well, you know, the scholarship on revolution suggests that they occur when people begin to have hope. That is, when reforms begin to create uh, either expectation or aspiration that things can change. Um, and I noticed in... Uh, in the reporting uh, on the protests in Russia, that there doesn't appear to be hope for change, but the, the lack of hope for change is what's driving this. So I'm not quite sure how to interpret it, but I'm amazed at the courage of Russians to, and, and this isn't even a weather comment, although as everybody on the call knows, I'm super wimpy and Californian about such things. I'm glad I'm not in Chicago where Evo is or New York uh, where David is or Vermont where David is. But um, the, the courage to protest by the thousands against a government whose behavior is so consistently repressive that the that you know there are going to be negative consequences for you is, is a courage I think the rest of us should celebrate and, and hope that should such a day ever come for us that we have the courage that r the Russian people are demonstrating. Um, I think it's a great sign that Navalny was brave enough to return to Russia knowing what was going to happen. I think it's a great sign that he uh, released the investigative uh, video about uh, corruption because that's such an important part of delegitimizing the Putin administration. But uh, I, I'm curious what everybody else thinks that we can be doing to help that doesn't play into a narrative by the Russian government that you know the CIA is behind this and Navalny is an American asset uh, because finding constructive ways to support the people of Russia. My personal favorite way, as, as you guys have heard from me before, is using the tools of free society to protect and advance free societies. And in an instance like this, it would mean facilitating transparency about corruption and restricting the ability of Putin and his oligarchs uh, to be able to enjoy the fruits of their, um, of their stealing from the Russian people. So any of these guys own houses in Miami? Uh, are Wall Street banks uh, doing their money management? Those are tools the American government could, and in my judgment, should use to try and be helpful to the effort of transparency for governance in Russia. And on start, I won't say a single thing because one of the reasons I am such a devoted admirer of Evo Dalter 
is in the year of our Lord, 2008, when he was working on the Obama campaign and I was sailing on the pirate ship McCain, we got paired up to talk on some subject and it turned to arms control. And I had no idea because I was new in my job, either what John's positions were or what I should say about it. And Evo so kindly covered for me by stepping in and saying, well, John McCain's position has been blah, blah, blah. And here's where Barack Obama's position is an improvement, uh, which was both substantively true, but also a really kind thing to do for a rookie. Evo, you're such a nice guy. I only have one admirer, but it happens to be on the show, so <laughs> I'll take it. Um, uh, that's very kind. That's very kind of you. Let me, uh, uh, sort of two two things, uh, maybe three on this. First, on, on I'm struck by how nervous the Putin regime appears to be, uh, and 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 they're much more nervous than they were in 2011 and 2012, when the number of people on the streets were significantly higher. Um, uh, than they are now. Um, but the, the fact that, uh, first of all, that they tried to poison Navalny in and of itself was, you know, and, and, and of course failing yet again, uh, which is a whole different story about how, how, how smart and good these people are. Uh, but then um, uh, Putin had refused to name Navalny, to mention his name ever, and uh, now has come out and defended himself against the allegations that he owns this uh, massive uh, palace uh, and he has gone after Navalny by name. Uh, and, um, you know, the fact that they probably had more policemen, uh, certainly in, uh, in some of the bigger cities than they had protesters uh, and the heavy handedness in which they uh, acted all suggests to me a nervousness on the part of the regime that's kind of new. And there's a reason, there, you know, there are many reasons for it, but uh, Putin's popularity has uh, declined significantly. Uh, the post-Crimea consensus, this idea that uh, he had restored Amer uh, Russian uh, back to its mighty superpower status by uh, invading and annexing uh, Crimea, which many Russians thought was a great idea. Uh, that consensus seems to uh, have dissipated at the same time when the economic situation in Russia uh, it really is putting the squeeze on people, not just in the provinces where they have been squeezed for a long time, but now increasingly in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Um, I, I, I know that uh, in the paper today, uh, in, in David's paper, uh, that living standards are down 10% over the last 10 years. That's not a good way uh, to uh, maintain popular uh, support. So I, I, I just, I don't know how real uh, the, the uh, the reason for the nervousness is that the regime is in fact teetering. Uh, I, that, that's hard for me to believe. But the fact that they think they uh, are un, in trouble uh, is noteworthy and, uh, and, and concerning. Um, second point I, I, I'd like to make is, uh, is on, on, on Biden. Biden is the first post-Cold War president to come to office not believing that improving relations with Russia is a good idea. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton came to office uh, uh, started the, the Bill and Boris bromance and um, believing that support for Rielsen was critical for democracy and economic transformation. Uh, George Bush, of course, uh, famously looked in, in, in Putin's eyes and got a sense of his soul. Uh, Barack Obama uh, hit the reset button with uh, Mamedev and, and Donald Trump. Well, you know, 
Donald Trump. Uh, uh, it was all about uh, his good friend, uh, Vladimir Putin. Biden doesn't buy into that story. Uh, he may have in 2009, but he doesn't today. And it's not even clear he did in 2009. Um, he is coming uh, to power uh, in the belief that Russia represents, as he said uh, in the 60 minute interview a few weeks before the election, is the number one threat to the United States. Um, that's, a, that's a remarkable statement. He called uh, China the number one competitor of the United States. It's a different, different framing. Uh, and you've seen uh, Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, uh, and, uh, and the White House come out quite strongly uh, on the issue of, um, uh, of Navalny and the protests and uh, the uh, um, need to have new intelligence assessment and a whole series of issues uh, from the solar winds hack to uh, the bounties on, uh, on US soldiers in Afghanistan to election interference, uh, a much tougher and, and harder line. Uh, uh, but, and that's number three, uh, uh, not forgetting that there are certain issues where you need to work with the Russians on, and the most important is arms control. Uh, and despite the fact that not just the Trump administration, but many people on the Democratic side, including people who, who are entering this administration, believe that extension of START should be something that you use as leverage on the Russians, the first thing that Joe Biden did is he said, I'll give you five years. Um, uh, on the extension of the, start, the new START treaty, uh, which I think was the right move. Um, it is the last remaining arms control agreement we may have with Russia. Uh, if this treaty had gone by the wayside, it would have been the first time since, first time since 1972 that there is no, uh, would have no, been no uh, uh, arms control agreement uh, with the Russians or the Soviet Union. It gives us insight into what the Russians are doing. It does provide limitations on a whole series of weapons, although not on everything we would want. Uh, and it stabilizes that part of the relationship so we can concentrate on dealing with other parts of the relationship in which the issues uh, are, are ones where we unlikely to agree. Interestingly, being the first um, uh, president the category you described. He's also the 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 most the, the, the first president in thirty years who was born pre Cold War, um, uh, but uh, his his views have been somewhat uh, more progressive on a, a wide range of things than many people expected. David, what's your reaction to all this? And I I thank Evo for bringing up the solar winds into this because that's part of the Russia story too, obviously. Uh, it is, and since Corey began with her favorite brief Evo story, I have to tell you mine. Evo actually worked as the foreign policy advisor to Howard Dean when he briefly <laughs> ran for president. You all remember this. Evo may not be wanting to remember it, but, but he was. And I was doing a foreign policy piece and got on their plane to, where was it, Evo? Iowa, I think Iowa. it was. Yeah, from yeah. Berlin. And, and Dean um, knew that I... Um, uh, spent my summers in Vermont and we sat down and the first thing he said to me was, uh, so David, how much of my tax, your taxes gone up while I've been governor? And I said, oh, about 300%, sir, because they really soak the, the, the out-of-staters. And he looked at Evo and I'll, I'll take the curse word out of this and said, I, I told you this was a bad blanking idea. <laughs> It was one of my most <laughs> favorite favorite moments in, in this. Um, and so it's interesting that um, 
that Evo has pointed out that Biden thinks that uh, improving relations with Russia is a bad blanking idea. Um, by getting new start, I think he has tried to take off the table uh, nuclear confrontation to the degree that he can, knowing that the next four years are going to be really rough with the Russians. And that in the end, if you've got a declining economy, and you're not producing for your own people, uh, as, as Evo pointed out, um, you're going to fall back on the fact that you have nuclear weapons in the end as sort of your, your last real reason to uh, be considered a superpower. For years, you have heard Russia experts say that they think that Putin's hold on power is more fragile than it appeared from the outside. And these past few weeks have been the first evidence that they may be right. Now, Putin's response to this is going to be really interesting to see, because when uh, Hillary Clinton challenged the 2012 uh, parliamentary election, Putin considered that meddling in their domestic affairs. And there are many who believe that what he did in 2016, when she was running for president, was his way of, of returning the favor. And you asked about solar winds, um, David, and I think you could consider solar winds as an example of how Putin believes he must challenge the United States. Because so far, the penalty for doing this in the cyber realm has been close to zero. And so now comes the hard part for Biden, which is to say that the combination of the Navalny uh, arrest, and I, I think sentencing maybe as early as tomorrow, and the uh, solar winds hack means he's going to have to find some new and innovative ways to, in his words, make Russia pay a price. And that price is probably going to have to be pretty high if it's actually going to form a deterrent. And I think they're going to be struggling for a bit in trying to figure out how to do that. And frankly, I don't think just revealing, much as I, I like Corey's idea, I don't think revealing that uh, Putin has made uh, billions of dollars and stored them away with the help of his oligarch friends is going to come as a deep shock to the Russian people. And so I think they're going to have to find something that hurts significantly more. Although Putin is going to have to get better at covering his tracks since they did discover this massive palace of his, um, um, a billion dollar um, palace, and, and, and to which his response is, oh, that's not mine. That's probably somebody else's um, palace. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is just the, 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 the tip of the, the iceberg on all of that. Uh, you know, I think, Corey, one of the things that comes out of this is this administration has been very quick, as you have pointed out several times already uh, on prior shows, to talk about democracy. And um, uh, you have uh, big crackdowns in Russia on pro-democracy protesters, uh, some of whom, by the way, were uh, visitors from uh, Belarus who, who were also, you know, arrested or at least folks speaking out on behalf of democracy protests there. Um, and it suggests that one of the challenges uh, building on, on, on what uh, David and Eva were just saying for this administration is going to all of a sudden come up with something like a meaningful, coherent policy 
to respond to attacks on democracy because you have it in Russia, you have it in Belarus, and uh, we've clearly got something, you know, they're going to have to deal with something in this vein in um, uh, uh, Hong Kong. Um, and in a minute, we'll talk about it, but they, you know, they also already now have something to deal like the, um, in this vein in uh, Myanmar. And, uh, you know, foreign policy, as we long have established in five years of conversations, doesn't have to be consistent. It seldom is, but it somehow has to make sense. And I'm wondering, you know, what, you know, what, what, how you put teeth in a pro-democracy policy. Well, I think there are lots of ways to put teeth in a pro-democracy policy. I, um, there are lots of creative small ball ways you can be helpful, lots of ways you can support. I think the harder problem is where to prioritize democracy promotion relative to other things the United States uh, wants to get done under the Biden administration. And as you rightly suggest, David, um, uh, the way it's going to affect other things you want to get done. So uh, it would, for example, be wonderful to turn up the heat on the Putin administration. But if I were in the Biden administration, I would be very hesitant to do that before I had a better understanding of the vulnerabilities we're experiencing as a result of the solar winds hack, right? Like uh, the new director of national intelligence is, has just recently asked for that evaluation, but uh, you know, sailing forth boldly to drive up the cost to the, to the Biden administration, excuse me, <laughs> to the Putin administration, um, before you know what the nature of our vulnerabilities could be to uh, extant uh, interference in our own systems, I think um, I would caution hesitation uh, on that. And on Hong Kong, where is democracy promotion for Hong Kong going to fit given that our other interests in China? And I don't think the Biden administration has made that clear. During the time between the election and, or excuse me, uh, the announcement of Jake Sullivan's appointment to be national security advisor. And now all of the subjects on which he has taken public stance have been democracy promotion subjects, which is wonderful, but uh, will that really be the top priority of the administration? And if so, what costs are they going to be willing to incur to make that the center? I, I would counsel that they should actually take their time and not let their hand be forced by events um, until they have a strong, cohesive sense for themselves about how these pieces are going to fit together. I think very often, you know, was it Harold McMillan who said events, dear boy, events were what dictated his prime ministership? I think it's possible to overreact to events as we overreacted to September 11th, 2001. And that hey, David, a very quick point on, on Corey's excellent point here. We may not know the vulnerabilities from solar winds for months, if ever. 
because so much of this was put in the private sector. So we may just not see it. Well, let's let's let me continue on with this with uh, with Evo, because while Corey is cautioning uh, us in in sensible ways, if all the United States does is condemn acts, that's no different from you know Trump's mean tweets. So 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 what would you counsel this administration to do? I mean. Solar winds, we may not know the full extent, but we know who did it and we know the extent is large, right? Um, and in the case of, you know, cracking down on, on, on peaceful democratic protesters, we know this is going to come up a lot in the next four years and we're going to have to figure out how to deal with it. And on top of that, we know that Putin has, you know, abused the relationship for the past four years. Uh, if not longer. So, you know, wh what is there concrete that can be done by this administration? So I, I think that, that, that Corey's notes of caution are, are, are important, but she, she had one phrase that, that struck me as, as the right one. It's small ball. And in many ways, when it comes to democracy, we've forgotten about small ball. We've just been swinging for defenses. We either invaded countries or put extraordinary sanctions on countries in response to, uh, uh, to either trying to promote democracy or in response to uh, failures of doing so. And we've forgotten what I think we did for a good part of the Cold War uh, and then started to dismantle the institutions that did that, which is small ball. Having USAI, uh, uh, having a US information agency and Voice of America and Radio Free Europe supporting civil society, working um, to promote the forces of democracy from within uh, these, uh, these countries, to help them, to train them, to give them uh, advice uh, and support uh, uh, through uh, NGOs, through USAID sponsored efforts, through US information efforts um, that are all designed to play the long game. And the long game, uh, uh, is is where you uh, try to help those forces within a society uh, to get stronger uh, and 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 win the battle of ideas and ultimately the battle for power um, because that's what it's about. It's this idea that outside intervention uh, can change the course of history uh, that I think we have now uh, over the last thirty years seen doesn't work. Um, but if the inside, the helping the forces on the inside with the internet, with the information that is out there through NGOs, through civil society um, uh, is, is, is the better and the longer way, uh, uh, way play. I'm thinking about what we did in Serbia. In Serbia, uh, the, what happened on the inside was supported quietly uh, on the outside. And yes, we had a number of uh, significant confrontations with them over Bosnia and, of course, over Kosovo. But ultimately, it was the people of Serbia themselves that made the case uh, and overthrew uh, the regime. And ultimately, it's going to have to be the people on the inside who do that. And, and it has been this, this urge and surge, uh, search for a big uh, uh, immediate gratification on the issue of democracy that, frankly, has set it back. It set it back in the Middle East. Uh, whether it's Iraq or, 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 or Syria, or indeed in Libya. Um, remember, this is the 10th anniversary of the, uh, of the Arab Spring. 
uh, let's look at, at how well that has uh, ended up. Um, and we've forgotten how to play the game of quiet diplomacy, uh, of investing in the kinds of small ball tools of which, you know, as any good baseball uh, uh, player knows, is how you win a hell of a lot of games. And ultimately, that's what it's about, rather than whether you have a spectacular uh, home run, even if it's a grand slam. Well, so, you know, built into all of that, I assume you, you would agree, is a multilateral response. And that is, you know, getting getting allies to do it along with you, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, this is one of the things the administration has put forward as its light motif for, for engagement. It's doing it together with allies, many of which don't like uh, our swinging for defenses approach and have uh, opposed it. But on these kinds of issues, uh, they are more than happy to work with us. And by the way, they probably have more resources and in some ways more credibility uh, than we may have at the moment. Well, hey, Evo, have you made the same suggestion to the Chicago Cubs? Because just looking at their record, I was just trying to figure this out. You know, given, <laughs> given that the Cubs have decided that they're, that they're not going to play ball, ball anymore for four uh, <laughs> Four years. I'm. I'm looking to the white. I'm so now. glad David swung at that pitch, so I didn't have to. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I was going to bring up Nelson Arenado uh, there, uh, Corey, and the spectacular heist that was conducted by the St. Louis Cardinals on your behalf. I assume. Oh, indeed. We haven't had real brilliance at the hot corner since Scotty Rowland left the St. Louis. Cardinals, and I am delighted to report uh, that it looks like not only did we get a great hitter from Colorado, we got a great third baseman. I'm very excited about the, our prospects in the National League Central, which is, of course, the only division in baseball that really matters. I, I have to say, I, I, I once worked in a, in a company with a, a, a somebody's friend of Evo's and and all of you, Tony Lake, who is a big baseball fan. And as a consequence of Tony's baseball love, who he was a former national security advisor, everybody in the in the company was playing fantasy baseball, something that he played in the White House long before anybody else was playing it. Um, and Scotty Rowland was my third baseman, Corey, and he was great. And wow. I just I I just remember uh winning. Um, actually, the little league we had there, and in part it was because of Scotty Rowland. So, excellent, excellent reference. Well, by, the, by the way, speaking about fantasy baseball and and, and Tony Lake in the White House, uh, there was always a suspicion among people in the NSC staff that when Tony and Sandy Berger got together at the end of the day, what they were really talking about was their fantasy baseball teams rather than the nation's national security business. And I bet you more times than not, we were right. I believe that is correct. I, I believe that is correct. So let's switch uh, in in our remaining ten or so minutes here. Uh, talk about the other big breaking news story of 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 the past uh, twenty four hours, which is this apparent uh, coup that has taken place in Myanmar, which has resulted in Aung San Suu Kyi and the country's um, elected leader um, uh, be, being detained. Uh, Interestingly, uh, for uh, uh, fans of coups in the United States, the predicate for this coup, David, was um, that the election, there was election fraud. Uh, but somehow the uh, Burmese, uh, the, the Myanmar military 
managed to pull off their election fraud based coup better than our former president did. Um, where, where, where do you think this goes? Well, first of all, um, I, first of all, this is a tragedy because uh, this was the one area where we thought the United States across a couple of different administrations, Republican and, and Democratic, was making some progress. And in the Obama administration in particular, um, there was a sense that getting the military to at least loosen up and create the illusion of having some separation from politics was a big victory that they did not achieve in Iran and they did not achieve in Cuba. And so President Obama went to Myanmar twice. John Kerry went there a good number of times. I was with him on, on one or two of those trips, including his last one in 2016. Um, they uh, would- uh, we, should, we should note also that the current White House Asia czar, Kurt Campbell went there a number of times as well. He, he did. And um, uh, so and so what's happened here, you know, is a major setback. And I thought that Biden's um, statement, which came out uh, midday on Monday, even stronger than Tony Blinken's uh, the night before, made it clear the U.S. was going to have to look at reimposing sanctions that they've lifted over the years, but also said, we're going to be watching for how every country in the region responds to this and whether they put pressure on the military to go back, which was a direct line to China, uh, quite clearly. Um, that said, I don't think the U.S. has got a lot of leverage out here. For one thing, I mean, they're not going to go far out on a limb for, um, for uh, Dorong Sang Suu Kyi because she has been basically the defender of uh, what's amounted to at best mass murder uh, by the uh, by the military. She basically made a bet that she could neutralize the military by helping them along, and in the end, she got arrested by them. So you know, she's on, in the West. She has sort of given up that halo that she had around her when she had her Nobel Peace Prize as the dissident, and uh, now her bet that she could bring the military along, along has sort of blown up on them. Um, this will be a really interesting first test of small ball versus big ball, I, I, would, I would say. Uh, and the second one's gonna come with, with Navalny. I think David has been incredibly charitable there, Corey. Um, uh, uh, you never um, think about me as incredibly charitable. Well, in this, in, in, this, in, in this particular case, because Aung San Suu Kyi, became, you know, the cover for yeah, genocide absolutely. against the Rohingya. And, and, um, and so this, this looks to be a case where U.S. policy, you know, hasn't turned out very well, but there's nobody to root for. What's your take on how to respond to it? I think you are exactly right, David. Uh, there, that it's tempting to say, uh, that Aung San Suu Kyi and her political party and the military all deserve each other. Except, of course, the Rohingya and the people of the country deserve better than either and both of them. And so I like the idea that, that we're trying to shape their behavior. I take Evo's very good point that you can't win other people's freedom for them. Um, 
and and the choices people in the country will make. I'm really worried, though, that this could devolve very quickly into sectoral violence in the country. Um, and I don't, I wouldn't advocate us intervening in that, or uh, I don't think there's that much we can do. I wish sanctions weren't our first go-to uh, U.S. option. It sounds like we're already threatening the military with sanctions for the arrests. Uh, I do. We think are quite explicitly. It's it's very clear in the Biden statement, Lori. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think we overuse sanctions, and they they're becoming proof to me of a lack of creativity, a lack of you know ground balls hit, sacrifice flies that Eva was talking about. Uh, my favorite book on American foreign policy continues to be The Ugly American. And so I would advocate uh, thinking about ways to help people organize despite the military crackdown. Um, uh, but, I, but I really struggle with this. I don't have a lot of good suggestions to offer. Is this one of these places, Evo, that it's not just small ball, but the U.S. just hasn't really been terribly effective and we don't have a lot of leverage and while we can express our feelings about it unless you know we don't even have multilateral mechanisms in the region that are terribly effective to deal with this kind of thing um did you know is it is there something we can do or is this an instance where perhaps uh, we need to realize our own limitations well, it's, it's always good to, to, to start with humility and realize that, uh, that maybe uh, we are limited in this way. But it's also, it seems to me, this is, this is a, an opportunity to try to figure out uh, how to actually make good on your, on your own beliefs. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of stuff, it seems to me, that we can do. Yes, it's true uh, that Aung San Suu Kyi um, has been the poster child for, for, for genocide and defending it in the international court uh, of all places. Uh, but this isn't about her versus the military. This is about the voters versus those who are denying the voters their outcome. This is a, this, there was an election, uh, there was a winner, uh, and the loser in that election is at this point taking away the right of the, the, those who, who won uh, to govern. Uh, we've been through that in our own country. And if we're going to stand for uh, this and, 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 and say this is okay or we just can't do anything about it, I think that undermines our own, um, our own posture. Uh, uh, David is absolutely right that China is one of the places that Biden clearly was pointing out when he was talking about the rest of the region and how they react to it. But so are all the other ASEAN countries. And I would argue that uh, this is a great opportunity for the United States to re-engage in a part of the world that frankly, uh, I'm not sure the, the, the Trump administration even knew existed. Trump never went to an ASEAN summit, uh, as far as I uh, recall. He may have gone to one of the first ones uh, in 2017, but he hasn't been back since. Um, so trying to talk and work with the, the countries of ASEAN uh, to see if there is a way to put more pressure on Myanmar on this issue. Uh, do more of the small ball 
uh, kinds of engagements. We do uh, have uh, a much a better insight in what's happening in Myanmar than we did 10, 15 years ago. Uh, we've had active relations. We've had an embassy. Uh, we, we did visit. We have all kinds of opportunities to do more. Um, so I, I, I'm with Corey. Sanctions may be the right thing because we lifted them uh, as a result of, uh, of movements on democracy. But, it, but if it is the right thing, it's certainly not the only thing. Uh, uh, and we need an, a, a much better uh, integrated uh, policy that brings a multilateral approach together, focuses on democracy and, and what the people themselves want to try to figure out ways to strengthen them in order to deal with this issue. Uh, you know, it's not a crisis that you would want for, 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 for any administration to face in its first couple of weeks. It's certainly one that's not good for the people of Myanmar, uh, but it does provide the opportunity for the administration to think through, okay, we are for democracy. We're going to be different uh, than our predecessors. Here's an opportunity for show us how we're going to be different uh, and, to, uh, and to use that opportunity accordingly. Yeah, I think I, I tip my hand on my own particular view on this in my, my last question to, to, to Evo in the last round. Um, and that is that, um, this administration includes many people with whom I personally have had long conversations about the need to um, sort of go to a present at the creation 2.0 moment, think about international institutions in a new way, and reinvigorate multilateralism by uh, the hard work, the blocking and tackling of diplomacy. And uh, it, is, it is clear in both of these two cases um, that while there's a strong impulse in the United States to do something um, uh, and that unilateral action by the United States and Corey's point about sanctions is particularly acutely true in this regard is gonna be not terribly effective. Whereas diplomatic action with both our allies and in the case of Myanmar uh, with our, our rivals like the Chinese um, is gonna be absolutely essential. And so, you know, in some ways, I see both of these instances as a, as a call uh, to start walking the walk of a new kind of multilateralism uh, and to set aside the various forms of ineffective unilateralism that are associated with American exceptionalism, which hopefully is a doctrine which will end up on uh, in the dustbin of history um, uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, but we shall see. Uh, these are the earliest possible days. Uh, fortunately, we have uh, great uh, experts and friends like we have had today to provide some insight into that. Um, and uh, we, uh, uh, we will continue to follow these things um, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the not too distant future um, and carry this conversation uh, forward. I want to thank Corey. I want to thank Evo. I want to thank David. I want to encourage all of you. We've got a, a full week. We're kind of making a, a move here uh, uh, at the DSR Network to put out four or five podcasts a week, one of which will be typically a Wednesday podcast, which looks at, uh, uh, brings in an expert and allows you to pose questions to them in a webinar setting. This Wednesday, um, our, uh, our expert is... Uh, 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 my friend and David's friend and, and, and the mutual friend of all of us, uh, Tom Friedman of the New York Times. Um, we also uh, typically will do often, 
one-on-ones on books like we did last week with Adam Gentleson on his excellent book on the U.S. Senate. And this week we have Frank Figluzzi coming in tomorrow on Tuesday to discuss his uh, excellent new book on the FBI. We have our usual third Thursday podcast. And of course, we have our Breath of Fresh Air Light Weekend podcast where we get in great people to talk about current events, but in a kitchen, often talking while baking cookies, uh, which is the secret life of cookies. Last week, um, uh, we had Kavita Patel on the show. This week, Joyce Vance is going to be in the kitchen um, with my sister, the, the, the food critic, Marissa Rothkoff. Uh, so got a lot coming. Go to the DSR network to follow it up. Uh, we'll see you uh, again here uh, at those various intervals. And again, thanks, Corey. Thanks, Evo. Thanks, David. And uh, everybody stay warm and healthy out there. Bye-bye.